Well, hello, my name is Michael, and I am so glad to be here with you looking at the book of Romans. And, and we will be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 20. So I'm going to start by reading uh, from this, this text. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely of the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. But the law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that, just as sin exercised dominion and death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. So as I said, my name is Michael, and I am so pleased to be with you. And you may not recognize me because I actually don't attend this church, but I've been invited by your leadership team, your pastors, to come and preach uh, on this text. And to be honest with you, I'm very grateful to, to be invited. I don't take that invitation lightly. I, I take that invitation very seriously and gratefully that uh, you would trust me to, to come here and, and, and talk through God's word with you. Um, and might I just say, getting to know your leadership and having done some teaching uh, sessions with, with people like Dan before, uh, you have a, a wonderful leadership team here. There are wonderful things going on here. And uh, there are wonderful things going on in the uh, group of churches called the Fellowship, of which this church is a part. And I actually go to Village Church, the Langley South Campus. Um, I live in Langley. With my wife and my two kids, uh, we have t we have two boys, uh, almost seven years old and three years old. So, grade two and preschool, and uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 
ninth wedding anniversary just this week. So uh, we are in the thick of it now. Uh, things are crazy. Things are wonderful, but things are crazy. I'm running on coffee because I'm tired all the time. And for work, I actually teach at the Seminary and Bible College, which is a part of our denomination, the Fellowship. That's Northwest Seminary and College. I've been there for just over four years. I serve on the faculty there. And every once in a while, our churches invite me to come and do something like this, which I, I really enjoy when I get the chance. Um, so that's a little bit about me. And now we're going to jump into Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 20. So initially I was told that we were going to start at verse 12, but as I was looking at the scriptures, I felt like I needed to go a little bit back to verse 10. So that's where we're going to start, and then we're going to move into uh, verses 12 through 20. So to, to repeat that opening line there, that, that we, we hear. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. So the relationship between death and life is emphasized here, but it is not portrayed as an equal relationship. Life is emphasized more than death. Indeed, Jesus said in the Gospels, I came that people may have life, and have it abundantly. He did not say, I came to manipulate people with fear and shame, to focus so much on sin and death, and, and his death in particular, that we forget about the life the living God brought out of death. In other words, death is a part of the gospel story, but it is not the whole gospel story. And death certainly is not the end of the story. As much as we hear about sin and death in these texts, death and sin do not get the final word. Life does. Grace does. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians verses 12 to 19, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. To paraphrase that, yes, it is so important that Jesus died on the cross, but if he didn't rise from the dead three days later, then we have no good news. So the end of the gospel story is life, not death. And so we continue to verse 11, but more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So a practical question with significant implications for your life, my life emerges with this emphasis on life over death rather than death over life or putting equal emphasis on both. Here's the question. Do you boast do you rejoice and glory in the life of Jesus Christ more or less than you do in his death? The word boast there can translate to rejoice or glory in. I think all three of those, those definitions are helpful here. So let me repeat that question. Do you boast? Do you rejoice? And do you glory in the life of Jesus Christ more or less than you do in his death? There are two reasons why this question matters. 
First, we live in a boastful world that often rejoices and glories in problematic things. Christians are not exempt from this, that the words celebrity and pastor often appear in the same sentence indicates this. In spite of such boasting, rejoicing, and glorification in and beyond the walls of the church, do we instead boast, rejoice, and glory in the life of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God? Second, and related to this question, it, it is possible to boast, rejoice, and glory in the death of Jesus Christ so much that we forget to boast, rejoice, and glory in his life. In Galatians 6, verse 14, Paul writes, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here, in Galatians, Paul is boasting about the life brought about by that cross and that death. In doing that, he is putting more emphasis on, he is rejoicing and glorying, glorying more in the resurrection and the life, the effect than the cross and the death, which is the cause. Here's why I think that is important for us to hear. It is essential to emphasize the cross and the death of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. They reveal the breadth, depth, and character of our alienation from this loving God and the death caused by the sin that causes this alienation. That's Romans 5, 6 through 11. And they reveal how far God would go to rescue us from this sin and death because God loves what God has created, the heavens, the earth, and everything and everyone in it, including us, enough to rescue us even if we try to get away from God. However, however, if we emphasize the cross and the death of Jesus Christ more than the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ, are we consistent with Paul's emphasis here and elsewhere, in Romans, Galatians, and elsewhere? Here's why I'm asking that question. Because there's always a story behind the reason for the preacher preaching what the preacher is preaching. When my family and I came back to Canada after living in Scotland for about four years, I noticed something about the theological culture here that I did not notice until I became part of a different theological culture. Here's what I noticed. There is a very strong emphasis here on the cross and death of Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's emphasized more than the resurrection and life of Jesus Christ. That is, when the good news of the gospel is preached in a lot of the North American evangelical settings that I find myself in, the horror and the death of the cross and the tragedy of our sin that put him on the cross and killed him so often is the primary emphasis in that story, in that description of the good news of the gospel. Whereas the resurrection in the life of Jesus Christ that was brought out of the cross and that death so often is the secondary emphasis. It's the, it's the surprise ending to the story. Or we celebrate it only on particular days during the year. But for the majority of the year, we talk about the cross, the horror, the tragedy, and the sin. 
Like, do you notice that? Do you notice the unequal emphasis here? Am I the only one who is noticing this? Maybe I am alone, but I've thought a lot about this, and I have some thoughts about why this happens. I think emphasizing the horror of the cross and the death of Jesus Christ and emphasizing the tragedy of our sin and death that caused it moves people. It motivates people. Without a doubt, there are positive aspects to this. Don't get me wrong. We need to know the breadth, the depth, and character of our alienation from this loving God. We need to know the death caused by the sin that causes this alienation. We need to know how far God would go to rescue us from sin and death. We need to know that God loves what God has created, the heavens, the earth, and everything and everyone in it, including us, enough to rescue us even if we try to get away from God. However, if we overemphasize the cross and the death of Jesus Christ and underemphasize the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ, the chances are we are problematically relying on fear and shame to move people towards God. And here, as elsewhere, Paul emphasizes the cross and the death of Jesus Christ don't move us to fear and shame. They move us to resurrection and life. In so doing, he's not using fear and shame to motivate people to move towards God. He's actually employing gratitude and affection as he draws out attention to a God who moves toward us, not only in the cross and death, but also in resurrection and life. Putting it differently and more simply, Paul gets, because God gets, that fear and shame can produce immediate results. It can. It can produce an immediate religious response from people. It can scare them into a change of thought or belief or behavior. But here's the thing. A religion born out of and based on fear and shame will ruin that religion and its people in the long run. As Jesus Christ says to so many of the religious leaders in his day, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you do not go in yourselves. And when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's from Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 15. And being a teacher of undergrads, being up with the lingo of what all the young kids are saying, they would say, that verse slaps. The reason why it slaps, especially for somebody like me, is if I'm looking around for who these Pharisees and scribes and lawyers and such are today, it actually is probably somebody who looks and talks a lot like me somebody who teaches at a seminary in a Bible college. I'm the Pharisee of today, and so I have to wrestle with this. Am I overburdening the people that I am called to teach and lead and care for? Am I actually blocking the door to the kingdom of heaven? Or am I pointing to it wide open with Jesus standing and saying, here, go through here, go through here. You may have messed up. 
You may have messed up, but God loves you. He's going to take care of that. So in short, Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, came so that we could have life and life to the full. That's what he says in John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 10. He did not come to get us to spend all of our time dwelling on death, dwelling on his death, on our death, and the death of others. If that is the case, why do we dwell on the death so much and forget the life of Jesus Christ? I think it's because the life of Jesus Christ is scarier than the death of Jesus Christ. When Paul brings in the discussion of Adam in verses 12 through 14, we start to see why this is. I know it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but bear with me. This is what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In saying that Adam is a type of the one to come, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, in later verses calls the second Adam, Paul is saying the Adam who in the beginning rejected God and chose sin and death over God in life, this is Genesis 3, is only a shadow. It's only a shadow that prefigures the light of God to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The first Adam, the Adam that rebelled, threw the world into sin and death and struggle, he's only a shadow of the light that is to come in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So are you familiar with the Genesis story? Some of you may not be. It's traditionally known as the fall, the fall account. So in case some of you are not familiar, let me quickly summarize what happens in this story at the start of the Bible. This is Genesis 1 and 2 leading up to Genesis 3. God creates the heavens and the earth, everything and everyone in it. He looks at it and says, very good. But there's one thing that's not good. The human that he created, Adam, is alone. So he creates Eve out of, out of Adam's side. And they become one flesh. The two become one flesh. Now, things don't stay very good for too long because all of a sudden a serpent shows up and starts questioning some of the things that God said to Adam. So he gets to the couple through Eve. And he asks Eve some questions like, hey, what can you do in the garden? Eve says, well, we can, you know, eat from these trees and we can do this, we can do that. Uh, but there's one tree we can't eat from. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're not even supposed to touch it or look at it. Because, you know, if we do that, then, then surely we're going to die, like God said. And the serpent says, really? Like, do you really think that's true? Maybe, maybe God just doesn't want you to take from the tree because if you do, you'll be like God. And so 
being persuaded, Eve looks at the fruit and says, actually, yeah, it looks, looks pretty good to eat. So she takes a bite. And then she hands the fruit to Adam, who was present but was silent the whole time. Both of them eat the fruit. Their eyes are open. The first thing they see is that they're naked. They become ashamed. And it's about more than physical nudity. It's about a deep personal exposure and vulnerability. They're no longer clothed in the grace of God. They, that's gone. They just see themselves without that. And they feel ashamed and terrified and they hide. But God seeks them out and says, what are you doing? Where are you? And they fess up to eating from the tree as if God didn't know. And God says, why have you done this? And Adam says, it was the woman you gave me who deceived me. So then God goes to Eve. What happened? Well, it's the snake that you created that deceived me. And next thing you know, creation is cursed. There's relational fracture. And it goes from bad to very bad to very bad to very bad in Genesis from there. So that's the story. And just for the record, so often Eve is singled out as the culprit, but Adam is complicit too. Because Eve wasn't around when God gave the commands that he did to people. When language was given to Adam, it was just him. When the command to be fruitful and multiply and stay away from the tree was given, it was given to Adam. It was his job. It was his job to guard the word. It was his job to share the word with Eve and make sure that snakes didn't come in and tell lies and mess things up. So Adam didn't do his job, and Eve didn't do hers, and it was a collective rebellion. It wasn't one or the other. Just to set the record straight. And that's why we see Paul talking about Adam here. Right? So... For all those folks who want to single out women and blame women for the fall, you know, starting with Eve, here we get the other side of the equation. We get the fellas. We get the Adams. We are all fallen. We are all complicit in the fall. So in saying all of that, Adam like so many people in the past, present, and likely the future, choose, quote-unquote, independence and, quote, power over relationship and love with God. But here's the good news, even in that bad news. God does not abandon Adam. He doesn't abandon... <laughs> here's the good news, even in that bad news. God does not abandon Adam. God does not abandon Adam and Eve immediately after the fall, nor in the long run. Eventually, God becomes human to undo the causes and effects of Adam's fall and our falls with Adam. And for pre precisely this reason, Paul says the following, as bad as Adam's falls and our falls are, and trust me, I know they're really, really bad. I'm 37 years old right now. I have two kids. I'm tired all the time. I work a lot. My wife is going back to school. 
things are crazy. And when things are crazy, things just get bad sometimes. There are peaks and valleys of life. I mean, there are lots of peaks. I am so thankful for the life that I have. But in the last few years, there have been some really hard moments. And I don't think I'm the only one who has experienced that coming out of a pandemic, coming out of such uncertain times. A lot of us put up a good performance, but at the end of the day, like it's pretty bad, even for the people who are able to perform and mask and have a glass half full perspective. It's, it's hard. I get it. I don't want to downplay that. But I also want to offer a word of hope in response to that. Not to downplay the bad, but to say, and yet there is hope despite all the difficulty. So despite that rebellion, despite this trespass that I paraphrased in Genesis 3, Paul says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely of the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I'm just noticing as I'm reading this, the word dominion, that's a throwback to Genesis where we failed in the dominion that we were given, Christ succeeded and we can participate in that success. Success, I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe the right word is uh, redemption or healing. Whatever word we use, if the free gift is not like the trespass, then why do we so often view the trespass as equal to the free gift? Why do we often emphasize the trespass more than the free gift. It's because the shadow of the first Adam is more familiar to us. And so it appears safer to us, safer than the dangerous light of the second Adam, the threatening resurrection in the life of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God. So why do I say dangerous and threatening? Because despite all the appeal of life and life to the full in Jesus Christ, we have to walk through death to get there. Jesus puts it plainly in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verses 34 to 36. He says, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life, life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? In sum, we cannot get to the resurrection and life in Jesus Christ if we're not willing to go through the cross and death with Jesus Christ. On the other side of that cross and death is resurrection and life, and that makes the cross and death worth it. But don't underestimate the fear and pain of the cross and death that comes before the joy and healing of the resurrection and life. It's scary. 
Healing hurts sometimes. Change hurts sometimes. Growth hurts sometimes. If growth and change and healing were easy, more people would be doing it, but not a lot of people do. A lot of people decide, I'm not changing for anybody. It's too late. I'm going to stay how I am. No compromise. People just have to adjust for me. Why? Why? Despite the broken relationships and pain that causes people, including the person making that decision. Because change, growth is scary. It requires people to step out into the unknown, to give up control, and to risk everything, even our lives. And that is why it's so tempting to dwell and hammer on the shadow, the sin, and the death of the first Adam, rather than boast, rejoice, and glory in the light, the grace, and the life of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We want to go back to the way things were before the fall happened. And if we can't do that, and we can't, by the way, because the gates to the garden are locked, and there's this flaming sword hanging over the gates, and if we try to get back in, that sword's going to cut us apart, if we try to get back, we'll, and it doesn't work, we're going to settle for the next best thing. We're going to settle down. We're going to camp out as close to the locked garden with the first and dead Adam instead of walk forward into the unknown in life with the second Adam. Does this remind you of any other story in the Bible? For me, I think about Israel being liberated from slavery in Egypt. God has done amazing things to get Israel out of a terrible situation. I just read through this storyline in my son's action Bible. We read it every night. And I mean, great bedtime stories for all you parents out there. The, the, the plagues, I mean, that's serious stuff. I'm being sarcastic here, by the way. Sometimes I do that. Now, the point is, God takes these oppressed, enslaved brutalize people into freedom, into the desert. God is guiding and providing for them, and he's taking them towards safety and abundance in the promised land. But the moment trial hits, the moment resistance hits, Israel complains. They accuse God of not being a good God, despite all God has done for them and is doing in that moment for them. And then at one point, they actually asked God to go back to slavery. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate of our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Even earlier, when the Egyptians are closing in, on Israel standing at the edge of the Red Sea, chapter 14. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. That's all you got to do. Stand firm, stay still, trust in God. When things get rough, and they did get rough for Israel. I mean, imagine Pharaoh's army closing down on you. I do not want to judge Israel too harshly here. I would probably be up there complaining and saying, yeah, being in servitude in Egypt would be better than being run down by one of these chariot things. That being said, I think the fear would have clouded my judgment at that point. Because thinking with a clear head, how is it that we have come to believe that safety and food in slavery is better than uncertainty and danger and freedom? So here's the question that we all have to wrestle with is, are we like Israel? Honestly, I can say that I am sometimes. When things get rough, and they do get rough for Israel and us, it can seem like the shadow, the familiarity, the manipulative and motivating fear and shame of the sin and death of the first Adam is more appealing than the light, the unexpected, the out of control and wild grace and life of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Here's a quote that I absolutely love by a sociologist and theologian named Jacques Ellul. He writes this in a book called The Ethics of Freedom. It's a long quote, but he puts it well. Alul says, To say then that the Christian is liberated is not to say that they are superior, that they enjoy an advantage. There is no worse present than freedom. To view freedom as a privilege is to surrender to the absurd ideology that people are free by nature that people are made for freedom, and that the only minor obstacles like economic or political constraint prevent people from being fully free. This fails to take into account that whenever people have made a beginning of liberty, they have taken fright, retreated, renounced their freedom, and sighed with relief at being able to put their destiny finally in the hands of somebody else. Freedom is the most crushing burden that one can lay on a person. In people's vanity and boasting, people pretend they want to be free. They also have a visceral fear of confinement, conditioning, and servitude. What we call our love of freedom, however, is really only our rejection of imprisonment. It is a revolt against slavery, which we cannot tolerate. But once a little freedom is offered the person, he starts back at the sight of the void, which he must now fill the meaning he must now provide, and the responsibility he must now carry. People prefer the happy state of belonging to a group. They want a mediocre happiness, which brings no risk. This is the basic experience which is described in Exodus. The people have been delivered from hard, blatant, and crushing bondage in Egypt. It has come into the desert of freedom. Behind it is the heroism of faith at the crossing of the Red Sea which had all the thrill of revolution in the first step into freedom. It must now advance in this dangerous land in which there is no guarantee and neither past nor prospect. At once the people begin to protest. It regrets having left Egypt, where we sat by flesh pots and we did eat bread to the full. 
which was, of course, far from the truth. If we look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. Israel wants to go back to the land of servitude and security. This story is an illustration which has validity for us and for all people, for people are deceiving themselves when they pretend we want freedom and love it. In effect, we have to enter into what is different, and people are afraid of what is different. In freedom, we have to enter into what is not immediate or assured in advance. We have to pioneer impossible and impermissible ways. This is freedom, but people are afraid of leaving the ways of what is possible, immediate, and reasonable. So, the gift is greater than the trespass. The grace is greater than the sin. The freedom is greater than the slavery. The life is greater than the death. Move towards God. Boast, rejoice, and glory in the overwhelming grace, the wild freedom, and the full life. Move away from the alienation. Let God end the sin, the slavery, and death through the cross and with the resurrection. That is the hope of the gospel. The gift is greater than the trespass because God brings some amazing things out of very awful things. Not only does God wipe the slate clean, he also reaches into the worst imaginable circumstances, lies, rebellion, isolation, alienation, violence, fear, shame, sin, and death. And out of that, he brings grace, freedom, and life. That God brings good out of bad, life out of death. But that does not mean the bad is good and death is life. Bad is bad and death is death. But, but the good and the life of God comes to us in spite of the bad and the death. So that is the hope of the gospel. No matter how bad it gets, like Adam and Eve and like us, who are separated from God, separated from the person closest to us, naked, terrified, and ashamed with the threat of death in light of the cursing of creation, God never leaves. God still enters in. God still cares. God still protects. God still provides. God still brings good, grace, freedom, and life out of the sin, slavery, and death. And yes, there are consequences for the rebellion, consequences for my rebellion, consequences for your rebellion. There is no going back to life before the rebellion, before the bad. The gates are locked. The sword is sitting outside the gates. You can't force yourself back in. You can't get back into the garden. You can't get into the time machine and undo what you have done. But God does. But the way God does that is wild and it is good. God says, what is done is done. Here are the consequences. You have to live with the consequences of what's been done. But I am still with you and I will never leave you. You can't forget. No, you still remember a bit. And you can't just move on, but you can move forward. You can move forward and I, the Lord your God, will be with you. Moses says to Joshua in Deuteronomy, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, to us in John's gospel, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when all of you will be scattered each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. 
Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will face persecution, but take courage, I have conquered the world. In some, there is no going back to life before the sin, the slavery and the death. The shadow of the first dead Adam is just that. It's a first dead shadow. There can only be forward movement or a refusal to move. But you're not alone. You get to move and you get life with the second Adam, Jesus. As bad as it gets, the good will always overcome the bad because the gift is better than the trespass. The reconciliation better than the rebellion. The grace better than the sin. The relationship better than the alienation. The freedom better than the slavery. And the life of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, so much, so much more than the death of the first Adam. So the reason why Paul says the triumph of Jesus Christ is greater than the tragedy of our rebellion is because tragedy tried to stop the triumph. It tried to throw everything it could at Jesus. It tried to throw everything it could at God. We see that in the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, and we see that in the crucifixion stories, how bad it got. They threw everything at Jesus, but it couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. New Testament scholar Beverly Gaventa puts it this way. By crucifying Jesus Christ, the anti-God powers bring about their own defeat. Since their destructive power is no match for God's resurrecting power. Why do we look to the powers of this world to save us when the power of God has already saved us. To trust in that, to stand firm and be still and trust in that and not look to the next leader, the next institution or the current leader or the current institution to do that for us, but to stand firm and trust that the power of God is present and works, takes risk, but it is a risk worth taking because it will never let us down. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The angels ask the women at the tomb of Jesus Christ, and they tell them, he is not here, but he is risen. The old Adam is dead and buried in the ground. The new Adam brings us out of the grave. So let's talk about both. Let us talk about the death and the life, the sin and the grace, but let us boast Rejoice and glory in the new Adam. Let us not let the old dead and buried Adam keep dragging us back into the grave. That's why Karl Barth writes in his commentary on Romans. He writes, As a consequence of the righteousness of Christ, there comes justification of life unto all people. Here is the negation of all negation, the death of all death the breaking down of all limitations, the rending asunder of all fetters, the clothing of people with their habitation, which is from heaven. For all people, death is swallowed up in victory and mortality is swallowed up by life. That's the hope of the gospel, that life is greater than death. Grace is greater than sin. As one professor I had put it, 
the problem is worse than we thought, but the solution is better than we could have possibly imagined or hoped for. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, and it echoes with the Romans passage we've been looking at. From now on, Paul writes, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's the application. The people you spend time with in your life, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, people in the coffee shop, people in the gym, do they know you more for being a person that brings reconciliation, a person who is a person that brings life, a person who is alive and because of that brings life to other people? Or are you known for being a person of division and death? If we dwell too much on the death and the sin, we will miss the life and the grace. We have to address the sin problems, but we also have to proclaim the grace solution. That's my prayer for myself and for everyone who is listening. To close, I want to read a holy sonnet by the poet John Donne called Death Be Not Proud, which forms the basis of my prayer for us, for you, for the people that are around you, for the world. He writes, Death be not proud, though some have called thee, mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. God, we pray that in confidence that death is overcome, 
not because anything we can do, but because of what you have done. God, we confess that we fall into the ways of the first Adam. We preoccupy ourselves too much with the shadow of that first Adam. But we also believe in faith, in hope, and love that the light of you, your son, the second and last Adam shines brighter, that it overcomes the shadow of the first Adam, that you overcome what was set into motion by the first Adam. We want to be with you, God. We believe that you pull us close, that you move towards us, that you are present, even though there are times where it feels like you're absent, like your word says, you are with us to the end of the age. So whether we feel like you are close or far, would we feel the good news of that? Would we trust in the good news of that? Would we meet you there? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.